Guys, it has been over a year and a half since our last... Is, is, am I getting a ring? You guys okay? Gotcha. Just making sure. Um, it's been over a year and a half. I don't think it's me. I think it's probably Jalen's fault. Everyone look disapprovingly at Jalen in the back. Oh, shame. Okay. So it's been over a year and a half since we had our last pizza theology in person, I think, right? Right? Okay, excellent. And if you have pizza theology fatigue from me speaking at them since I did the whole last one by myself, I want to A, apologize to you, uh, and then B, uh, tell you that there is hope for the future since Brandon is doing the whole last half. So let's hear it for Brandon. Yeah. Okay, so... Um, tonight, our, our topic is, uh, is how to think like a Christian, which only in, in hindsight did I realize could sound pretty boring. And it could only sound pretty boring because I feel like most people, if they believe in Jesus, kind of assume that they already think like a Christian. And so learning how to think like a Christian uh, may sound like I kind of already know that. So it uh, doesn't sound incredibly interesting to me. Hopefully, I can change your minds about that tonight. I'll start by introducing myself. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Garrett Davis. Uh, I am a campus pastor at Collin College. Uh, yep, uh, you can toss up the... Well, actually, you know what? If you're a cougar or have been a cougar at any point in time, toss up the seas, baby. Look at that. All right, way to represent. Um, okay, so uh, I'm a pastor at Collin College, uh, campus pastor there. Uh, and then I'm also on staff uh, with our church in Denton, Denton North Church, uh, and doing there as well. So some of you are, are attendees of, of that church as well. Um, and if you want to know my other jobs, because I do have some more jobs. I'm a big, I'm a collector of jobs, actually, now that I think about it. Um, I also do some fine woodworking. I make furniture and things like that. Some of you guys know that. Um, and that's a fun kind of like side business that I own. And then on top of that, I'm also a professor at UT Dallas. Uh, so whoosh as well there. So I have some connections to our different colleges and churches and ministries and things like that. Um, and it's also customary for me to, to start off any time that I talk with a story about my children. Uh, so I want to do that right now just to get it out of the way, okay? Um, so I have a son named Jack, and I have a daughter named Juniper. And uh, my son Jack, the other day, I was riding to the golf range with him. He likes to go to the golf range with me. Uh, and he holds the bucket of balls and like launches the ball towards me and, and usually just straight out onto the, the golf range. So I can't ever touch that ball. Uh, but he throws me the ball there. Anyway, we we're driving uh, to the golf range together and Jack goes, dad. And I go, yeah. And he goes, I wish this world was different. And I was like, whoa, man, like sermon analogy coming on up. And I'm like, what do you mean, buddy? And he goes, I wish it was Halloween all the time. <laughs> I was like, all right, all right, good deal, good deal. Um, not what I was expecting. I thought you were going to say something, you know, deep and meaningful. I think what he was just getting at, though, is that he really likes Halloween. He just kind of wishes it was Halloween all the time. Um, so, yeah, not, not exactly on point or on topic in any way, shape, or form. Um, but I did think it was pretty funny. Uh, oftentimes, I think I catch myself thinking about things uh, maybe not, not as immaturely as that, but kind of in that regard, you know? I wish this world was different because it would suit me better if this was the way that things were. In his case, Halloween all the time. Um, and so tonight's topic revolves really around two questions. 
what is truth and how can we know what it is? Okay? What is truth and how can we even know what it is? Oh, uh, quick thing here. Your packets. Okay? I want to make sure that I, I reiterate this. This was not Paul's fault. This was my fault. I am known for changing things last minute. So I want to, A, apologize for having that. I want to apologize publicly to Paul. Uh, but then also, uh, just to let you guys know, we're going to be starting <laughs> your packets on, I think, like the third or fourth page that says additional something. Additional considerations. Okay? We're going to start with some additional considerations. <laughs> and then we're going to move into that, that next uh, section, I believe, that it's called... Um, foundational thinking. Okay? Does that make sense? So you're going to start by just kind of freewheeling your notes in that big open page there. Does that make sense? Cool. I'll tell you when we switch. I'll make you a deal. When we switch to that, like, very first actual page of notes, I'll tell you when we switch there. Okay? So don't, don't freak out. Feel free to raise your hand at any point if you didn't hear the blank. Or just ask a neighbor quietly. Okay. So, um... Just some additional considerations. Maybe the first consideration that we have to understand is that there are some very, very powerful lies at work in our world that work to blur the truth of Christ. Tonight will hopefully help us learn how to pursue the truth. And I've been asked, like, what's the topic of pizza theology? I think people are expecting me to, like, talk about any number of hot-button issues uh, going on right now uh, in culture. And I'm not really going to do that. I might hint at some of them. But this is not just about specific lies within our society. Rather, it's about addressing the way that we come to know what those those lies are and how we, in turn, believe the truth. Does that make sense? So tonight is less about the bread and more about the bread basket. Think of it this way. If the bread basket is your way of thinking... And the bread is the specific thoughts you have about any number of things. Tonight is not about those specific thoughts that you might have. Even though I hope you will evaluate those later. But tonight is about the bread basket. I would like you to at least consider what I say as a way of addressing not just what you think, but the way that you go about thinking in the first place. That's what I would like to talk to you guys about tonight. What we're hoping to Uh, to help you out with. Two verses that come to mind whenever I think about this specific subject is 2 Corinthians 10.5, where Paul says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. That idea of taking captive every thought, I know, is typically used in terms of the specific thoughts that enter my head. And yes, that can play well with this verse as well. But it also, and I think especially means, that we take captive every thought in society. Every idea that comes along, we've got to take it and make it obedient to Christ. Listen to me carefully. Everything that you experience in our culture, from podcasts to television shows, to interactions with your professors, to interactions with your friends— Each one of those things, each one of those interactions carries with it a number of Trojan horses. These ideas that are seemingly good and that when allowed to enter into your thought process will actually work to destroy 
Christ inside of you. Lies are very powerful to that end, and I want to talk more specifically about those lies in just a little bit. And then in Colossians 2, that next verse. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Now listen to this next part. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. Our world is absolutely chock full of hollow and deceptive philosophy. Philosophy is the way you go about ascertaining what is true. It is the way you think. And we'll talk, we'll talk about more about that in just a little bit. We're going to evaluate our thinkers today rather than just about certain thoughts. Okay? These powerful lies, if we believe them, will ultimately separate us from healthy relationship with others and healthy relationship with God. So we've got to figure out what those things are. These lies are like viruses floating around. Those viruses only have one goal, right? To infect a host and to wreak havoc and to only serve themselves. It's not about health at all. The whole, like, what what doesn't kill me only makes me stronger is not factually true. (laughs) Sometimes it makes you weaker, like gives you a weaker immune system. When I got infected with MRSA, a staph infection, whenever I was in college, actually, and after I had a large cell bone tumor removed and had MRSA, That did not serve to make me stronger. My leg became weaker. It never became just as strong. My blood, that means I'm way more unlikely to get infected with MRSA in the future, with staph infections and things like that. It just didn't happen. Likewise, a lot of these lies that we tend to believe that we think are pretty harmless can serve to do some pretty irreparable damage in our lives. Christ can certainly redeem and heal. However, these lies will wreak havoc on our lives and in our hearts. So, if that is the case, then the truth of Christ, Christ himself, he becomes both our mask and our vaccine. He becomes the one that saves us and keeps us away from these lies that seek to have us. Changing gears here, I want to talk quickly about intelligence and love and how they play together. Intelligence and love go hand in hand and support one another. It is a modern and distinctly Western lie that the heart is not a part of intelligence. Many of our paradigms include the idea that to be intelligent is to be logical, and to be logical is to be um, emotionless. That is untrue. I need to remind you quickly that emotions did not have their beginning in humans. When God has emotions, he is not acting like a human. In fact, when we have emotions, rather, we are acting like God. God has emotions. He had them from the get-go. Sadness, happiness, anger. You've seen all those things in God before you see them in people. Now, human emotion is certainly fallible and broken, but the enemy is not emotions. The enemy is emotions based on lies, Proper affections, emotions, feelings that are rooted in healthy reality are actually a way of achieving true understanding of objective reality. 
Otherwise, if Jesus, we, we couldn't say Jesus was objective because he certainly had and experienced and displayed emotions, did he not? So, the scripture, like I said, suggests otherwise. In 1 Corinthians 8, 1, you have Paul saying, knowledge puffs up and love builds up. The focal point of scripture and Jesus' teachings is what happens inside us at the heart level. Our minds are extremely important, but thinking like a Christian is going to start counterintuitively in our hearts. There's two warring worldviews that are at work here. I think we have that on the next slide. You have the Augustinian view and the Cartesian view. The Augustinian view suggested that the basic problem of the human condition is that of disordered desires or loves. In this view, human beings were created in love and for love. So we are lovers first and thinkers second. We live primarily from desire, not our rational minds. In the Augustinian view, the problem of the human condition is not that we don't love, but rather that we either love the wrong things or the right things but in the wrong order. Right? Disordered loves. That's what we're talking about. The Cartesian view suggests that humans are first and foremost rational thinkers. Just think about that for a moment. As you reflect on our culture and this point in time, as you reflect on what's happened at a culture-wide, worldwide level, is it your assertion that humans are first and foremost rational, dispassionate thinking individuals who are guided by a steady stream of empirical evidence and logic? We all laugh at that because it is becoming an increasingly difficult worldview to defend. I'll just leave it at that. That's a difficult worldview to defend. Whether we like it or not, our hearts are informing our minds. And we should be careful to cultivate our hearts to look like Christ if we want to think like him. Now, if you're a bit of a left-brainer like I am and you need a little bit of help right now, let me help you out a little bit, okay? Your brain houses both your mind and your heart. Your brain, let's just call that, uh, or your mind, let's just call that your conscious thought. And your heart, which is your desires and your affections and your feelings. Anytime you use your brain then, both your heart and your mind are in play. Does that make sense? They are very much in play. Anybody that suggests to you that they are a completely objective thinker, free of any desires, passions, feelings, or whatever... Such a person is what we call a sociopath, not an objective thinker. If anyone suggests that and they're right, that's a problem. That's a real problem. Notice how I am not saying that we need to just let our feelings and our hearts guide, our, guide us into truth. That's not what I'm saying. I'm simply saying if we want to be realistic and become better thinkers, we first got to realize how much of a role that our hearts play in what we're actually thinking. Okay. In fact, I have, I do ministry with young men very often and many of them tell me I'm just not very emotional. I'm just not very, you know, blah, blah. And usually what that means is they are actively repressing 
their emotions on any number of different things because they suppose that will help them think better. In fact, I did ministry uh, with, a, with a handful of different people over the years who we have this thing called the Taylor Johnson. And on the Taylor Johnson, there's uh, a lot of different, it's personality or, you know, uh, uh, it's called a something assessment. Temperament assessment. There you go. Your temperament assessment. And it measures, uh, one of the measurements is empathy. All right. And another one of them is subjectivity and objectivity. So it's like empathy and apathy and then subjectivity and objectivity. So I had um, a person I did ministry with, or actually a handful of ministers now have fit this mold. One of them, or n- numerous of them, had um, uh, uh, subjectivity was pretty high on their, on their Taylor Johnson. And he did not like this, right? He did not like this. Also, his empathy was pretty high. Their empathy tends to be pretty high, right? But their subjectivity is also high. And so I think they suppose that if they can quell their empathy and become more apathetic stoics, if you will, right? If I can become more stoic, then I will become more objective. So these people do this. And then a few years later, we look at their Taylor Johnson and now their empathy has been dropped down towards apathy and their subjectivity has increased. I've seen it numerous times. They suspect if they can just quell the emotional stuff, they can become more objective thinkers. That's not true. An objective thinker is someone who very much understands what they're feeling and understands where their affections are leading them, and they make an objective decision regardless. And then thirdly here, our culture is becoming increasingly hostile to Christian thinking. It is becoming increasingly hostile to Christian thinking. I'm not going to dive into all the reasons why that might be the case. Although the professor of sociology and me would love to. Right? I'd love to like just hijack this whole like theology thing and let's just get into the nitty-gritty details of the zeitgeist that is, is in America right now. Let's go. You know, so I don't want to do that. But needless to say, Christian thinking is becoming less and less in vogue. And one of the main reasons is because Christian thinking asserts that there might be a specific, objective, empirical, absolute truth that revolves around and that actually is Jesus Christ himself. That is offensive to people because they subscribe to the concept of relative truth. We'll talk about that in just a little while. But we need to be aware of what's at stake here. There is a lot at stake. When we talk about how to think like a Christian, we are talking about something that is eminently important for this exact moment in our history, in the church's history. Okay, we have to know what we're thinking and why. So I want to frame the conversation and I want to use the help of John Mark Comer. Uh, For those of you that have not read John Mark Comer before, I've only read one of his books. and It was relatively recently and I believe it was a God deal and the timing uh, seems to have been uh, really, I don't know, I uh, I think like I said, I think it was a God deal. There's a new book that he has called Live No Lies. Um, I highly recommend reading this book. In fact, uh, we're going to do, we've reached out to the publisher um, and we've uh, told them about, you know, our campus ministry. And this is like a nice hardcover book and that's the only format that it's sold it and it's $22. They've agreed to give us a 50% off discount. 
uh, for the books that we order through our ministry. So we'll send that out later, uh, um, a, a link to, to sign up for those books if you're interested in it. But anyway, if you want to get it before then because you can't wait, it's called Live No Lies by John Mark Comer. So the, the following that I'm going to talk about in this specific section, uh, the, the vast majority of it comes from him, and I'm just going to try to synthesize it for you real quick. But there's not going to be any spoilers. Spoilers because there's not any in that book. Okay. We're going to define a couple ideas here. Number one, truth. We're going to define truth, simply put, as reality. Yes, I understand Jesus is the truth. He said, I am the truth. I get it. I believe that as well. But for the sake of just following this argumentation, just follow with me here. Let's just say truth equals reality. Whatever is real, that's true. So lies then are unreality. We're going to define them as a matter of unreality. We're going to call ideas assumptions about reality. You following with me here? Ideas are assumptions about reality. And then something very important is mental maps. I I like to call them paradigms. It's a collection of ideas by which we navigate life. Now, let me just try to put that all together for you really quickly. You and I have developed a mental map, each one of us, a distinct mental map of the way the world works. That mental map is based on the ideas that we subscribe to. And those ideas are assumptions about what constitutes reality. So, all of us then, whenever we interact with any given thing, any new person, any new idea, any new anything, everything is getting filtered through those mental maps. Does that make sense? That paradigm that we have. It's a huge problem when we can't tell that we have a paradigm. (laughs) If you just think the way you think is the way to think, then you don't think. Okay? I need to point that out. If you have never evaluated the fact that you have a specific way of thinking that is most likely in some way flawed, then you probably are not doing a lot of good, healthy thinking. And I want to invite you tonight to become a better thinker. So there's three problems that we butt up against as we are challenged to combat the lies and to believe the truth and to actually enter into thinking like a Christian. And problem number one is the devil. I know that's not a common thing to talk about. He's not a common being to talk about, especially in the, like a, a lecture style uh, pizza theology. Okay, And I know that makes people uncomfortable, but you need to understand something. Like Paul suggests in Ephesians, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Those of you who have made people in the world your enemies, the people that you're up against, you have missed the fact that those are not our enemies, but rather we have a real enemy, someone who hates the truth. The scripture calls him the father of lies. In John 8, 44, he's the father of lies. The teaching of scripture suggests, just as a quick download, there's more to it than this, but let's just go based off of these things. That Satan is a real, immaterial, but very intelligent being. In other words, we are not talking about an idea, and I have to stress this very, very clearly. Satan, the devil, he is not an idea. 
okay? He is not a construct any more than Jesus is a construct. Jesus was a real physical person. God is a real, actual, uh, divine being, okay? He has a personality. He has wants, that kind of stuff. He has personhood, the Holy Spirit as well, but we won't go into Trinitarian theology. Satan also is a very real being, and the people, or not people rather, the beings that are with Satan, in his army, in his, uh, under his sphere of influence, are also likewise very real beings. Their end goal and his end goal is to spread ruin in our own souls and in society. He is so bitter about God being in control. He wants that power. He wants that control. And the way that he's going to do that is to spread disinformation. He is the father of lies. His primary means to ruining souls and ruining societies is to make people believe that a lie is the truth. Think about this for a moment. When the serpent deceives Eve in the garden, the truth is that God loves Adam and Eve, has created them and provided for every single thing they need. But the the serpent plants the seed of a lie. The lie is God is holding out on you. God is holding out on you. You need to take control of this for yourself. And that lie, that one little lie, literally bought us all of the pain and suffering that we now experience as broken sinners. And the lie has been magnified and increased over time to where our society is primarily operating based off of lies and so little truth. Those lies are the darkness. The truth is the light. But men hated the light because they would rather stay in the darkness because their deeds are evil. So Satan's strategy is deceitful ideas that play into disordered desires, which we're going to talk about in a second, that are normalized in a sinful society. I'm going to say that again. Comer puts it beautifully. I love this. This is Comer, not mine. If you hear anything good here, it's most likely hijacked. At least I'm telling you. His strategy, Satan's strategy, is deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires in ourselves that are normalized in a sinful society. You see that? He's waging this war of disinformation. If he can get us to believe lies, he can get us to willingly want death and emptiness for ourselves. I'm reminded of a movie that is strangely prophetic to American culture called Idiocracy. In this movie, at some point in time, um, you know, corporations convinced people of like this drink called Brondo. There's this drink called Brondo, all right? 
and Brondo is like this green sludgy drink, okay? <clears throat> and this company like became a massive, you know, you know, multinational corporation that convinced people that this was like the best drink ever and everybody just started drinking Brondo. And eventually they decided to come out with a Brondo for crops. And the whole slogan was, it's got what plants crave. <laughs> so this whole society begins to water their crops with Brondo. And of course, everything dies, and so there's a food shortage. But still, the lie persists, and people continue to use Brondo to water their crops. There is something that is deeply true about this in our culture, about the things that we believe will produce happiness, about the things that we believe will produce life, about the things that we believe will produce meaning. It's all Brondo. It's all got what plants crave. Thinking like a Christian is going to take us fighting those lies and finding out what actually has what plants crave. Hint, it's water. Problem number two, the flesh. So problem one number one is Satan. So we can all get behind that. Everybody doesn't like Satan. Okay, well, at least here, hopefully. Um, here, everybody does not like Satan. What about the flesh? Now, the flesh hits a little bit too close to home because now we're talking about us. We're talking about me, and we're talking about you. The flesh is our base, primal, animalistic drives for self-gratification, especially as it pertains to sensuality and survival. That's the flesh. We talk about the flesh, we're talking about our fallen, sinful nature. The fact that we... Because of brokenness in the world, because of sin in the world, have become more animalistic than we are human, seeking after our own physical needs and wants. There's a concept that, that I teach about in sociology called the Sapir Wharf Thesis. And the Sapir Wharf Thesis basically suggests that, that your language is how you ultimately come to an understanding of the world, right? Because your language is your unit of thought. So whenever I think, I don't know about you guys, but I don't typically think about concepts like my friends with numbers or colors or shapes, right? I'm not like, you're looking particularly orange today, unless you're one of those people uh, <laughs> that's like all about vibes or I don't know what the, that thing is. It's not from Jesus, I know that much. Uh, so that being said, uh, we don't think about that. We think about words, right? We, we think our unit of measurement in our brains is words. We're thinking in words. In fact, there's a specific area in your brain that you're using right now to understand my words, and it's called Wernicke's area. And there's a specific part of my brain that I'm using right now to say the words that are coming to my brain as I'm literally talking about them, which is called Broca's area, okay? Now, if you can speak different languages, then you can even translate in real time the words that I'm saying to different words. But here's a, here's a crazy thing about this, is that when we look at people that are bilingual, trilingual, when we look at their brains whenever speech is happening, there's actually more of their brain that they're using, and they're actually drawing more parallels and more connections, okay? So, did I just, did something just change? Okay. Stop messing with us, Jalen. Golly, my goodness. Jalen. So, I'm just joking, by the way. I really like Jalen. You guys, if you remember last Pizza Theology when I, you know, railed on him for bringing me a cup of hot water from the tap and trying to steep a bag of tea in there rather than the hot water tap. 
my goodness. My, for shame. <laughs> I think he was just trying to upset me. So, the Savior War Thesis essentially is arguing that the words that we use and that how we define those things changes our, the way that we interact with them in our reality. I was talking to one of my staff members a couple of months ago, and she was recounting this, this, uh, this interaction that she had with her brother where she was really, really vulnerable with him and uh, had a really meaningful conversation with him and that he was like crying and saying like, I'm going to try harder in the future and blah, blah, blah. And the main word she used for it was that it was hard. That was a hard conversation. And I was like, hard? That sounds like miraculously wonderful, life-giving. I don't know. I could choose a million other words for that. And she was like, oh, yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess, yeah, sure. That's a little bit different, isn't it? But the words that we choose shape the way that we interact with reality. Does that make sense? If we don't have the right definition of the word or of the thing that we're experiencing, guess what we experience? Unreality. We experience something different than objective reality whenever the word that we have or that we associate with that that specific thing that we have going on, whenever we have that and we have the wrong word for it, we don't experience or get to experience reality. So let me define two important words for you in Western culture. Freedom and love. I'm going to define both of those words as defined by Western culture. In modern Western culture, the word freedom means the permission to do whatever we want. That's the definition of freedom. Some of you, if you're, if you're in your mind right now being like, yeah, that's right. That sounds, mm-hmm, yeah, good. Uh-oh. Now, love in modern Western culture, it usually means desire, Right? This strong feeling of desire that I have for somebody else, it's oftentimes associated with sexual desire. However, the kingdom, Christ himself, has two very different definitions of freedom and love. The kingdom's definition of freedom is the power to want and do whatever is good, not whatever I want. If that's the case, then a baby has the most freedom. In love, you could define it as a lot of different things. I love the way that Comer defines it. The compassionate commitment of the heart to delight in the soul of another and to will that person's good ahead of your own, no matter the cost to yourself. You want to talk about differences of definitions? Those two words are completely different. If I experience freedom and love in modern Western culture, I'm experiencing something vastly different than real freedom and real love in the culture of Christ. But we are meant to be a community that shows the truth of what those words are. Freedom is not the permission to do whatever you want to do. You talk about your free time like that. If you gave your life to Christ, you don't have that. You were bought at a price. You have become slaves to Christ is what the scripture says. Now, the world might say, aha, you see, religion captured you. You don't get to do what you want to do anymore. So you're not free. We know better. 
We knew that before we were in Christ, we were slaves to ourselves. And we are bad masters. Has anybody in this room, even just this week, said something to themselves like, you idiot. <laughs> yeah, me. I do it all the time. I'm like, literally one of those common phrases. I'm like, Garrett, why? <laughs> why did you do that? What, what were you thinking? Whether it was trying to lift that thing or trying to make that turn or whatever it was. Why did you do that? Like, what were you thinking? We are bad masters. There's only one good master, and it's because he is looking out for us the way we could never look after ourselves. His name is Jesus. He died for us, for our sake. In Christ, we can find real freedom. Only in Christ can I exercise the power to want and to do whatever is good. I cannot get that in myself. A man named Robert C. Roberts, a little redundant, who was an expert in Freud's influence on the West, says this. We have been led to feel that the self is somehow sacrosanct. That means like, like a holy divine thing in our culture. It's like, oh, that's so important, the self, finding yourself, you know. We've been led to feel that the self is sacrosanct. Just as in an earlier time, it was thought never fitting to deny God, so now it seems never right to deny oneself. Oof. Oof. Robert. See, Roberts. Just absolutely roasting the life out of me. So happiness has become about feeling good and not being good. Think about that shift. That's such a, man, Satan is good at doing that. Think about that. Happiness became about feeling good, which is all about you, versus being good, which is never about you. The good life has become about getting what we want, not becoming the kind of people who want truly good things. Oh my goodness. Say it again. The good life has become about getting what we want. Not becoming the kind of people who want truly good things. Things outside of ourselves and our own sinful, selfish, self-fulfilling desires. Speaking of desires, our strongest desires are not actually our deepest desires. Our deepest desires are about connection at a soul, heart level. And our culture tells us the best way to do that is to have sex with someone that you've made no life commitment to. Who could probably and most likely will just, in terms of statistically, walk away. It's a problem, a huge problem. And problem number three, the world. The world and its ways are simply at odd with Christ and his way. At a baseline, we have to acknowledge that. It has not been any more true in the human experience than now. The world believes something completely opposite. Completely opposite. About what is true, what is real, and what is good. 
In my class the other day, uh, I teach a class at, at UTD called Film and Society. We were discussing a specific film and we were discussing society. And the person was, we were talking about the specific, um, we're talking about polygamy within society and what is good and what's bad and how do they know that. And it's wonderful to talk about things like that with a relativistic, um, with a group that's very much into relative truth because then they begin to realize that they don't actually believe in relative truth. They simply believe that they believe in relative truth. And so when someone in my class said to me and said to the class, like, hey, like, I don't, like, polygamy is not wrong as long as it is safe sane and consensual. That was the words that they used. Safe, sane, and consensual. Then it's totally fine. And I was like, oh, okay. So adultery? You in for that? That a good thing? Half the class, all relativists, were like, I don't know. Safe, sane, consensual, and ethical? No, 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 not ethical. No, ethics, no. That means there's got to be something outside of us. That's the problem with our culture. There's, there's fine-sounding arguments, aren't there? Man, safe, sane, and consensual. Hmm, that sounds pretty good. Wait a second. Actually, deeply flawed. Deeply still humanitarian. Not humanitarian. <laughs> humanist in nature. Not humanitarian. <laughs> so the world, the best, I think the best definition that I can come up with uh, of the world. And by the way, when the scripture talks about the world, it's not always saying something bad. So like the world, like the physical earth is not seen as bad and we should just do whatever we want to it and then be like, see you sucker. We're flying off to heaven. Um, that's, I don't think that's good theology, but we'll leave that for another pizza theology. Uh, but when we talk about the world, we're also not just talking about like evil society. Like we are talking about a, a, can we find it? A system of ideas, morals, practices, and social norms that are integrated into the mainstream and eventually institutionalized in a culture that's been corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. Take a second to just read that again, if you would. Our world is shaping and redefining reality. And it is not doing so with Christ in mind. And yet we exist in this world right now. Are you starting to see the problem? And I don't think anyone in here is advocating for Puritanism. Where we need to go start our own community somewhere else. Hide away from the world and create a different you know, world even though there have been communities of the faith over time that have done that, right? So the problem becomes this. We are literally swimming in, raised by, completely surrounded by a world, namely a system of ideas, values, morals, practices, social norms, that's rooted in rebellion against God. And here's the crazy thing. More often than not, we can't tell the difference between ours and theirs. We can't tell the difference between our lives and their lives. That should be very concerning. Very concerning. 
Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz wrote about the ecosphere and the ethos sphere, the latter of which he defined as a shared realm of attitudes, behavior, and ethics. He made the point that our generation races against time to preserve our polar ice caps, glaciers, and endangered species, and yet tragically sits idly by as our even more important moral and spiritual resources are rapidly disappearing. I'm going to spitball some quotes at you here now about some thoughts about the world in its current cultural moment. Timothy Keller, wonderful author. The postmodern view sees all injustice as happening on a human level and so demonizes human beings rather than recognizing the evil forces, the world, the flesh, and the devil, at work through all human life, including your own. Adherents of this view, is that spelled wrong up there too? Yeah, my fault. Adherence, as in the noun, um, <clears throat> of this view, people who adhere to this view also end up being utopian. They see themselves as saviors rather than recognizing that only a true divine savior will be able to finally bring in justice. In other words, if you've been caught in the last few years thinking that the main way to social justice is via a government rather than by Christ and the love of Christ, if you think the main problem is just some people think something wrong, as opposed to the, the problem of human sin starting in your own heart, then you have bought in to the world. You get it? You bought into that, because that's what the world thinks. The world thinks, if I'm right politically, if I engage politically, if I just go ahead and dive into the political system and hope that the government is going to change everything, then I can change the world. Where is that message in the gospel? The gospel message is that sin begins with me. The gospel message is that I need redeeming. The gospel message is that we have an enemy, namely Satan, who is at work in the hearts of people, making them racist, making them hate people, making them full of lies and greed and malice. It is not a matter of political education. This is a matter of brokenness in the human heart. So we demonize human beings rather than recognizing the evil forces in the world that are at work. We think we're fighting the battle, but we're fighting it with the same tools the world fights it with. So are we fighting the same enemy? Does the world think the devil is behind all lies? We've got to think differently. Comer says, post-Christian culture is still very moral, painfully so at times. There is an unprecedented advocacy for human rights and equality, which I laud and link arms with. But note how its rise comes with cancel culture and online shaming. With the internet as judge, jury, and executioner, and majority opinion as the moral arbitrator. The West inherited from Christianity incredibly high standards for human rights, but without Christ's presence and power. It is increasingly devoid of the necessary resources to achieve its tomorrow goals. The result is a culture that can rarely live up to its own standards. And without any means of atonement, as well as an increasing hostility towards the idea of forgiveness, once you've sinned as defined by the new morality, you're a pariah. Ain't that the truth? 
See, the problem is with the, with the progress that we've experienced is that we've made good progress. Things like equal rights, like actually caring about minority groups in, in America. We've made good things, good progress in that area. But then we've radically, we've lumped those ideas into radically anti-progress things like abortion. Abortion is not progress. If that is upsetting to you, I need you to understand just how much Christ cares about people and humans. If the argument is, it is my body, my choice. My argument is the Lord, the Lord and the Lord alone is the owner of my body. I get that that is a difficult topic to address. And we need a fuller treatment of it. And I want to give a fuller treatment of that at some point. But not all progress is progress towards Christ. There are some things that we have, that we have bought into as Christians as progress. But they are Trojan horses. We have allowed them into our minds as right. When in reality, they could not be more anti-Christ. One more quote from Comer, and then we're going to leave him alone. Post-Christianity is not pre-Christianity. Rather, post-Christianity attempts to move beyond Christianity while simultaneously feasting upon its fruit. Post-Christian culture attempts to retain the solace of faith whilst gutting it of all the cost commitments and restraints that the gospel places upon the individual will. Post-Christianity intuitively yearns for justice and the shalom of the kingdom whilst defending the reign of the individual will. We want the kingdom without the king. And that won't happen. The things that our culture is aiming for, it will never get without Jesus. And the things that we are uniquely capable of giving them, namely the love of Christ, we have set aside for the tools that they use. Bitterness, envy, division, these things that the world thrives upon that it uses as its tools for progress are the very things that I think are destroying its ability to actually progress only in Christ can we move forward only when people understand who Jesus is and understand their need for a savior understand at the basic level, the places that we have missed the gospel and missed sin only in that. Can we progress only in that? Can we progress? I'm going to take, I want us to take a three minute talk to your partner next to you or talk to your friend next to you break. Okay. I want you to just really quickly reflect on the biggest question that you have in this section. Don't get up and leave unless you are about to pee your pants because we need to keep going. All right. But I want you to talk really quickly, two, three minutes, partner next to you, biggest question or thought you have from that section. Go.
Okay, now we are at the part of the packet where you can start filling out blanks. Yeah. So, most of you are like, finally, no more chaos. Just writing things on a blank page. All right, foundational thinking. We're going to fly through this stuff. Okay. Number one, foundational thinking. Christians are supposed to think. I know that is a crazy thing. But we are free to think. We are invited to think. And we are expected to think. The world thinks of Christians as non-thinkers. They think of them simply as, um, I don't know, vessels of religious indoctrination. That's what the world thinks of a Christian. In fact, many people that I've talked to who were not Christians, upon talking to them, were surprised that I thought. Whenever we had meaningful conversations, maybe you guys have had that, like, a similar interaction where people are like, whoa, you seem to be like an intelligent thinking individual. So how are you a Christian again? I always love that question from my college students when they find out that I'm a pastor. They're kind of like, hold on, I need, I need, I need some place to sit down for a second. They're like, I thought you were intelligent. That's essentially what they mean whenever they say it. When they're like, whoa, whoa, how do you, how are you this and then this? Like, how, how, did, how did that happen? Like, did you get hit in the head at some point? I'm like, yes. Uh, but no, so, <laughs> by the truth, I'm just joking, sorry. Um, we are not meant to substitute a blind faith with real, or sorry, we're not meant to substitute real intelligence with a blind faith. That's not what's happening here. In fact, I think, I really do think, when somebody actually gives their lives to Christ, that begins their birth at, into thinking, real thinking real healthy thinking into the truth. Before I gave my life to Christ, I did not care much about school. Then I did, and I was like, whoa, everything is interesting, and I need to know a little bit of everything about everything. This is all really fascinating stuff. I've had some people say to me before, whenever I've asked them deep or penetrating questions about what they think the scripture means or about what God is doing or whatever, that they'll say stuff like, you know what, I've just been blessed with faith. Like, I don't know what to tell you like about that. And I'm like, ooh, yikes. Okay, uh, where do I start here? Well, faith is not being unaware of truth, facts, logic, or anything else. Faith does take thought. You should have to think very deeply about it. In fact, if I really know what's at stake, I really might have to take a lot more faith to do it. Jesus' parables, let's just start with those. Those are invitations to think and to consider things deeply. If he wanted to just say something outright, he could have just said, Bleh. and then everyone like, got it. All right. That was easy. Why don't you just do it in the first place? Can you think of how many times the disciples are like, hey, why don't you just kind of like say it plainly? You know, like, why do you have to describe it to us like in depth on the back end? Like, could you just come out and like say it? There's a reason that he does it. He wants you to have to think deeply about these things. He wants to leave us with haunting questions. God invites us to know him and to experience a deeper understanding of him and of others and of the world. The Bible is incredibly helpful as the inspired word of God. It is the most important document that we have in the world, without a doubt. But, unfortunately, it's not a manual. I'm not sure if you guys have figured that out yet. When you're like, man, what career should I pursue? 
Let's go to the Bible. Eunuch. Oh, man. Shoot. That stinks. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that didn't, that's not how it works. Or, man, which person should I date? Paul's like, Paul gives us very helpful information there. He says, marry a Christian. <laughs> there you go, killer. Go for it. You know? So we're actually invited to think deeply about things. The Bible is not a manual. However, the Bible tells us what we need to know about who God is. And if we read it carefully and thoughtfully, over a lifetime we'll develop, hopefully, some truthful understanding of it that will guide what we think as we move forward. So we can discern God's will. We need to find out what pleases the Lord, as Paul himself says in Ephesians 5.10. And, of course, I might mention, as many of you know who have studied FOJ over the years, the word disciple in Greek is student. Mathetes, you know, learner, student, yes. In other words, you're supposed to be that, right? If I spent as much time reading, trying to understand Scripture, and, and understand God as I do watching YouTube videos of Daily Dose of Internet, then I would learn even more. I know, that'd be crazy. Number two, we talked about this already, so I'm going to go quickly. Our paradigm is a lens through which we see the world. We also called it a mental map. You can do either one, whichever one floats your boat. So the way that we see reality, the filter that we pass all of our observations through is unfortunately not a clear glass. Okay? We're not really great synthesizers of truth or reality. If you've ever watched a crime show, and I assume you have, what do we know about witnesses most of the time? They're not necessarily lying. They think they know the truth. They think they know what they saw, correct? And yet all these witnesses are seeing different things. It's only a fool that's like, well, one of those people is right all the way. Do you know what I mean? The nature, if you actually go and study uh, witness uh, interviews and things like that, you begin to realize, like, you have to get a lot of witnesses to say the exact same thing if you want something to hold up in a court of law. <laughs> it has to be, like, something very visible and obvious. Our paradigm is like colored sunglasses that we wear at any given time. Each one of us in this room, I wish we all had, like, some visible form of our paradigm that was, a vi- that was uh, easy for us to understand. So you're wearing green sunglasses and you walk around and you're like, that chair's green and this table's green and blah, blah, is green and that kind of stuff, right? Now, is it actually green? No. It looks green to you because those are your glasses. And you fail to acknowledge that you're wearing glasses in the first place. That is a huge problem. A huge problem. So if we ever disagree with somebody, our first go-to is not like, hmm, we must have different paradigms about reality here. Our first, go-to, our first go-to is either, this person is either evil or they're a moron. Guys, it's not that fun. I know it's funny, but it's not that funny because we exist in a culture. Just in terms of politically, we exist in a culture where half of them think the other half are either evil or morons. If you are in that boat, by the way, please join me in objective reality. And it is away from both political parties and towards Christ. Everybody in this model is a philosopher. Everyone is a philosopher. The question is not whether you're a philosopher. The question is, are you a good philosopher? Most people are just really bad philosophers. 
Nobody fancies themselves a philosopher, by the way. Or very few people do. The ones that do are, oh. But anyway, <laughs> you ever meet someone that calls himself a philosopher? Just start backpedaling. <laughs> but you are. And in reality, you are a philosopher. We have to ask ourselves whether we're actually a good philosopher. Are we thinking deeply about reality whenever we come across all of this unreality? That is not saying that reality is subjective, by the way. It's saying that objectivity, rather, is elusive and very hard won. Okay? It's elusive and hard won. How do we get our paradigm? Oh, my goodness, I would love to jump into that with you as well and talk about socialization uh, and talk about nature versus nurture debate and all that kind of stuff. Let's just say this. The way you got your paradigm was not that Jesus Christ himself reached down into the earth and put the mind of Christ inside of you just as he has it, and now you walk around with it. Let's say instead a different, probably more helpful model is you got it from a bunch of broken people, from a bunch of broken situations, and in a broken world. And you better believe that paradigm is broke. Okay? The paradigm of Jesus is what we're after, and only that is objective. Only his perspective is perfectly congruent with reality. He is the definition of truth. Finally, we got around to it, right? Jesus says, I am the truth. Okay? He alone is truth in that. Number three, we're naturally subjective beings. Okay? We're naturally subjective beings. A loose definition of subjectivity and objectivity. Subjectivity just means that it's belonging to the thinking subject rather than the object of thought. Does that make sense? Belonging to the thinking subject rather than the object of thought. For instance, this is a phone. Okay? Actually, this is a great example. This is a phone. Somebody tell me something about this phone. It's an iPhone? It's what? It's, he says it's got an oily scream. My man's flaming me up over here. All right. So I don't have as much time to clean it as you guys. All right. Anything else? Do you want? Huh? It's got a case. It's small. Thank you so much for saying that. People always tell me my phone is small. Okay. By the way, this is an iPhone 12, so stop like making fun of me. All right. Maybe your phone's just too big. You ever thought about that? This is like, this, okay, whenever, whenever the iPhone originally came out, it was closer to this size, and I remember seeing it, and this is a funny thing, my, my brother's friend, who lived like three doors down, his name was Adam, came over with it. He was like 18, I think, and I was like 21, yeah, when the iPhone came out, um, or something like that. I think I was around that old. He came over, and I go, what is this, Adam? Because I had a flip phone, which was like, come on, let's bring those back. Okay, anyway. We are. They're like flip phones with screens on them. Now. I'm like, come on. Anyway, um, he brought that over, and I remember being like, dude, that is, that's never going to take off. That phone is huge. No one's going to carry that around with them all the time, man. Are you kidding me? But it turns out that's not true. My wife basically has a tablet in her pocket <laughs> at all times. It's an iPhone XR, and I was like, oh, my gosh. You have to, like, use two hands on that thing. You have to use a pop socket on the back just to hold on to the thing. I can hold on to my phone and text and reach the whole screen with my one thumb. Anyway, now that I've proven to you the objective reality of my phone is great, 
I'm just joking. Do you guys get it? The subjectivity here is, it's belonging to our thought. This phone is not small, it's just a phone. Small is relative in that regard, okay? Now, if it got to an atomic level, we might say, objectively, that's pretty small. Then if it got to the size of this room, it might be "Mm, pretty big, okay? However, it's belonging to the subjective thinking person. By the way, subjective in our culture has come to be a bad term. Subjective is not always bad. I'm going to lay something on you here. Subjective thought is not always bad. It just needs to be used very carefully and in, in very specific ways. Okay? Now, objective thought is belonging to the object of thought rather than the thinking subject. So just switch them. Okay? Make sense? Subjectivity has its uses, like I pointed out. Here's an example. I'm at the park, and I'm watching Jack and June. A white van pulls up, and a man pops out with a lollipop and says, and I see him talking to my children and offering a lollipop. Now, if I want to be purely objective, all I have to do is get up on Google and say, how common is it for a child to be abducted? And if I find out that it's it's super rare, I'll be like, objectively, everything's fine here. No big deal. Keep an eye on it. Right? If I maybe am willing to use my more subjective parenting instincts in that moment and be like, mm-mm, doesn't feel right. I'm going to go run over there and be a good parent. Okay? Does that make sense? That's exactly how it's meant, I think, to be you know, used. So something else to know is that our knowledge is embedded in the web of our interests, which is inherently biased. If you become a scientist and decided to do chemistry, the reason for that was not just because you were like in a random, you didn't randomize that, (laughs) right? You weren't like, all right, here's all the hard sciences. I'm going to address, I'm going to put them all on a slip of paper. I have decided to become an astrophysicist. All right, here I go. That would be objective. That would be the most like, okay, that's not a part of it. Even your choices, your web of interests defines what you know about facts and things like that. Objectivity, though, comes through learning and training. In other words, it takes intentional effort. You have to think dials with a lot of this stuff. Dials. Objectivity comes through learning and training. In other words, all of our dials, if like objectivity equaled all of our dials were like right dead center, all in a row, a hundred of them, all like perfectly tuned with reality. The reality is that our dials are like, some of them are down to zero on some things and up to 10 on other things. And it just is a complete just turkey shoot. Who knows what those dials are? To become objective means I've got to evaluate my life, my thoughts, these different things. I need to seek objectivity in all kinds of different areas. And guess what the number one way to do that is? It's by reading people and thinking about people who disagree with you. And by nature, we tend to surround ourselves with and read and think about people who we agree with. It's the ultimate salute to ourselves. We're like, you know who's great? Me. So I really love people that are like me and think like me. Because me, you know, me is great. So there's this huge danger of placing my personal experience above that of most others as well. I see this in my classes all the time. I say some sort of statistical fact about something. It's not really debatable. It's not actually debatable at all. Like, I'm like, hey, here's how many people, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, well, I know someone who blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay. Are you suggesting the statistic is untrue because of that? 
They're like, no, 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 but I'm just saying, you know, different people have different truths there. Your truth, my truth kind of stuff. I don't know where to start with that because it's really difficult for me to understand how willing we are to negate the experience of everyone for our own experience. In other words, let me just leave it at this. We trust our own experience way too much. And also our experience in the first place, super subjective, right? We all have these biases. Whenever, whenever I talk about race and ethnicity in my classes, we have these biases that are built into us. There's a test called the Harvard Implicit Bias Test that I have my students go and take in order to try to like see their implicit biases. And one of the things that's so hard for us to realize is that because of confirmation bias, because we are so willing to put ideas in our head that we already think are true and so unwilling to put ideas in our head that we don't think are true on the first or, or grapple with those ideas, that we begin to collect a bunch of evidence for something we already believe while denying something that we don't believe. So if I believe that women are bad drivers, which is, by the way, objectively, just at a statistical level, women are better drivers than men. But if I believe that, geez, we already had someone that rejected me right outright. Good example right there. Closed off paradigm. I'm just joking. So so if, if I believe that women are bad drivers, whenever somebody cuts me off on the road and I pull up next to them to see which terrible person this could be, and it's a woman, then my brain sucks it up like a, like a vacuum. And it's like, I knew it, women are bad drivers. But if I pull up next to that person and it's a man, I'm like, dummy, and I move on. <laughs> it's true, we do this. Our experiences are not reliable because they weren't just our experiences. They were what we felt about our experiences and what we interpreted from our experiences. How many times have I heard something I said that I did not say? Well, you said I was dumb and worthless. I'm like, what? I don't think I said that. I think I just said that I'd love for you to turn the lights off (laughs) after you're done using them. That's all I think. I might have said, turn the lights off, you dumb, worthless person. I don't think I said that. I'm pretty sure I did not say that I love you. I won't say that. I'm not, I don't know. I'm not talking about anyone specific, okay? <laughs> if you've ever, uh, I wish I had time to do this, you know, in, in person for you guys because it's a cool party trick. But basically, what I do is I have someone stand here and stare at a point for, in, a, in a faraway spot, right? And I, I just have someone that comes up and I'm like, hey, just trust me. Like, stare right at that, that point and don't look left or right. And what I do is I take a colored marker, and I stand in their peripheral vision really easily to where they can see me. And I just hold it up and I say, what color is this? And they're like, and I'm like, you can see my hand, right? And they're like, absolutely. I'm like, what color is my shirt? They're like, it's green. And I'm like, what color are my pants? They're like, they're tan. I go, what color's the marker? They're like, I do not know. And I keep moving closer to them and more into their field of vision. Every time. And it gets closer and closer to where it becomes ridiculous and absurd. And everyone in here is like, what's the deal, you dummy? How come you don't know what color it is? It's clearly red. The pin is blue. Right? Those of you that don't know, that's a liar, liar reference. Clearly, I've mistaken my audience. Okay, so. I forgot. Yeah, thank you. Um, So. The truth is that you don't really see color very well in your peripheral vision. Like, almost at all. 
There are rods and cones in your eyes. The cones are narrowly focused on your focal point. You kind of only see color right here. Everywhere else, your brain is just filling in the gaps and telling you what colors there are. In fact, if you sit next to someone who's wearing a red shirt and you're looking at them like right now, you're like, I already know that their shirt's red. The only reason you know that is because your brain already filled in that information. It's not actually true. You don't really see that color. In other words, I know that's really funny and not fun, but it's a kind of a fun, cool situation there. Feel free to like research that. Uh, one of my common phrases, the Illuminati did not teach me that one. That's just up there for public consumption. So you're welcome to go look at that. But the analogy here is plain. Oftentimes we think we see things that we do not see. And we have to be less willing to trust ourselves. Number four, every thought is a hypothesis. Hypotheses lead to theories, which lead to laws. An example would be Jesus is Lord. That's a hypothesis. Some of you are like, oh, how dare you, sir? Actually, I don't think anyone said that, but here's how it's different. We have different opinions about who Jesus is, don't we? So whenever I say Jesus is Lord, which version of Jesus do you subscribe to? Is Jesus always meek and mild? Is he social justice warrior Jesus? Is he, you know, angry Jesus in the temple? Is he the Jesus that finds the woman that's about to be stoned and saves her? How objective, how full is your view of Jesus? And do we agree on who this man is? And furthermore, do we agree what it means that he is Lord Because to me, Lord means that he calls every shot of my life. My dreams got got subsumed by the gospel. My dreams are now that the kingdom would come in this world. That's my dream. That's what I'm after right now. That's a part of what I think makes Jesus Lord of my life. That means he's Lord of my money. That means he's Lord of my children, of my marriage, of my friendships, of everything. But we might disagree about what that looks like, right? That's why we call it a hypothesis. Oftentimes we get so offended at stuff like this for one simple reason. It's because we failed to see that our idea is not necessarily equal to Christ's. And so when someone calls into question our idea, we think they're calling into question Christ's. And then we get outraged about it. Think about that for a moment, right? That's why people can get so upset is because we think they're questioning the truth when in reality they're questioning you and your understanding of the truth. Does that make sense? Those are different things. Number five, this is one of my favorite ones. Objectivity dictates. It dictates that we must be wrong about a number of things. A pretty large number of things. Objectivity dictates that we must be wrong about a number of things. I'm going to make fun of our parents for a second, and then I'm going to use it to make fun of us. Does anybody have parents that think? No, sorry. (laughs) You guys are eager. Very eager. I got parents. Okay, so does anybody have parents that, like, like, you promise they think they are just right about everything. They're like, have you seen what the most recent blah, blah, blah did, right? Is that the most boomer thing in the world, right? Raise your hand if you got that. You hypocrites. (laughs) 
You do the exact same thing that you hate so much that other people do. Here's a quick test. Can you think of anything that you're wrong about? No, you can't. Sorry, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. You can't think of anything you're wrong about because if you knew you were wrong about it, you would no longer be wrong about it because you would think something else. Does that make sense? So in fact, this is so frustrating. Everybody in here, of all of you, you think that you're right about everything that you think. That's super scary. Super, super scary. Let me ask you a quick question. What does it feel like when, what's it feel like to be wrong? No, don't do it. Don't be that person, by the way. What is it? What does it feel like to be wrong? Embarrassing. Huh? Horrible. Humbling, for sure, hopefully. Right? Yeah. Here's the trick, party trick number two. You guys are not describing what it feels like to be wrong. You're describing what it feels like to be proven wrong. What it feels like to be wrong is exactly the same way that it feels like to be right. Think about that for a moment. At this very moment, you are wrong about a lot of stuff. I mean, probably a lot of stuff. I am too. Does it bother you a little bit that you have no idea what those things are? It should hopefully bother you quite a bit. That bothers me to no end. I'm like, is the percentage going up or down? Like, I don't know. Like, I'm trying as hard as I can. Hopefully it's going down. But I know that I'm wrong about stuff. I just got to figure out what it is. What that should do for us is it should breed humility in our learning from the get-go. It means that we have to balance our sureness with our openness. The point here, though, is not to second-guess every little thing or thought. You are, in fact, here right now in existence. For those of you that are worrying about that, like, am I in the matrix? Uh, I don't think you are. I feel reasonably sure that you are not. It's about recognizing our own fallibility. A part of our problem is that, like I said, when we think someone is questioning God's fallibility when they're questioning our own. (laughs) And then number six here, the last part of this this specific section Guys, I got to tell you, there is such a thing as objective truth. There is definitely such a thing as objective truth. The question is not whether there's an objective truth. The question is, do we know it? Do we know it? If we don't think there's an objective truth, then you can't believe in Jesus. I have to make sure that we're all on the same page there, because he is the definition of objective truth. He alone knows reality. And as Christians, if our big thing is you can never know reality... Why are you following Jesus? Come on. Use your brain. We don't use the your truth versus my truth in anything else outside of this religious debate like physics. Two plus two is four. Well, that's your truth. You know, my truth is two plus two equals lizard. (laughs) Right? Some of you are like, yes, two plus two (laughs) is lizard. And if it doesn't exist elsewhere, like in the hard sciences or just in the nature of things in general, like your truth is that it's a black hole. My truth is that it's a, I don't know, bag of Funyun. <laughs> maybe it's a big bag of, maybe we're all in a big bag of Funyuns. <laughs> it's not good. Got the bus in the street analogy is my favorite one. Someone's standing in the street, they're facing this way, 
traffic is coming this way. There's a bus that's about to hit them. And someone on the other side's like, you're going to get hit by that bus. And that person's like, that's your truth. My truth is there is no bus. I'm an immaterialist. <laughs> and also they can't see the bus. That's another thing. From their perspective, there is no bus, right? Regardless of whether they believe there's a bus or not, there is a bus. It will hit them and they're going to die. Likewise, regardless of whether you know the truth, the truth is going to act upon you. Do you understand that? The truth will act upon you whether you know it or not. This world will be judged by Christ whenever he comes again, whether they know it or not. Every knee will bow, whether they know it now or know it later. That's the reality. There are plenty of realities like this. That means that things that we believe that are not true are also acting upon us to separate us from the truth and separate us from God. The whole your truth versus my truth argument is a convenient lie that we believe. I know that cynicism is in vogue, but it's mostly just laziness. All right, next section. Limited forms of Christian thought. We moving. Let's go. Limited forms of Christian thought. We're calling these limited because they are not well-rounded ways of looking at the world. These are uh, mental maps. These are, these are paradigms, okay? The, the, I'm going I'm to list out to you guys, I think, five of them, okay? That are very, very prevalent in our culture right now. Limited forms of thought. If at any point it starts to feel like you start to feel a little heartburn, like, I kind of think that way. Man, good. That means it's doing its work. It's doing its trick, okay? So think that stuff. Maybe that might just be the feeling of those wrong things that you're not aware of starting to play their hand so that you can get them out. Does that make sense? And cast them out of yourself. The first one, mysticism. Mysticism basically says that God guides people or some deity guides people through religious experience that they interpret through their intuition, right? Some of you that heard me talk about subjectivity tonight, you're the really intensely subjective people that base everything based off of just their feelings. You were like, now it's time. Your reckoning has come. (laughs) The thought is that God guides me through religious experience that I interpret just through my intuition, and subjective experiences of God dictate my reality. I did have a student at some point, and I think I've told you guys this before. I had a student at one point who was always late to my one-on-ones with him. And whenever I asked him if he used GPS, like, not as a joke, I was like, do you use Google Maps? Because like, it shouldn't be this hard to get places. His response, no lie to me was that he did not need GPS because the Holy Spirit guided him places. And I was like, apparently not very well. (laughs) In my one-on-one with him. I remember I was joking. I just laughed out loud at him because it was so absurd. I was like, man, like, he needs to get some GPS then. Like, if that's the case, because that's not, it's not working. Like, you're 30 minutes late everywhere because you're just guessing where you go because you're like, spirit, do I turn left now? (laughs) Doesn't work. So it's not wholly wrong to factor in my intuition or subjective experience in the faith. It's at least a part of me listening to the Spirit's guidance in my heart and my life, correct? We're not trying to poo-poo on subjective experience altogether. 
What we're trying to say is it's a limited form of Christian thought. Limited. In other words, it's not the whole picture. It's not enough by itself. The problem is whenever we use that as our main or only way to gain knowledge. Essentially suggesting that God will guide me there without my effort. And it's something that I've heard a lot of times from students who like, really just don't want to think deeply about something. They're like, oh, God will tell me. Ooh, don't want to deal with all that. God will let me know whenever I need to know. He'll just put the feeling in my heart. And, and I'll know the right thing right away. Uh-uh. God gave you a brain for a reason, y'all. You got to use it. I have said that to my son before, and I regret it. Because <laughs> he did say it to me at some point. A few weeks ago. He didn't say it very well, but I knew what he was trying to say. And I was like, touche, my little carbon copy. (laughs) But it is an oversimplification of the guidance of the spirit and how we gain knowledge. Number two, compartmentalization. I'm going to start moving faster here. Get ready. Get those hands just flexed out, ready to go. Compartmentalization. People think in a Christian way in spiritual settings, but in other areas of life, it's completely different. Guys, Huge note here, it is not okay to have different values in different places. As a professor at UT Dallas, I am a follower of Jesus. In my woodworking business, even if I could make more money off a client that I know is wealthy, I am a Christian who loves the Lord. As a dad, as a friend, whenever I go to the gym, my values must say the same everywhere I go This generation has compartmentalized in ways that previous generations could not fathom. It is not okay. It's not okay in business. If the kingdom says give and business says take, Christians can't be okay with it. I've seen this play out in politics. I love Charles Spurgeon's quote. Of two evils, choose neither. I've seen it play out in entertainment. I hate sin, but I love to watch it. I hate sin, but man, you put it to a good track. Let's go. Talk about whatever you want to. I'm going to enjoy it. And if this is stepping on your toes, good, good. Cut them off. Your toe causes you to sin. <laughs> Pretty sure that's what Jesus said. We can't compartmentalize whether it's you're at church or if it's your free time. That's the best place we compartmentalize. If it's my free time, it's me time. I can do whatever I want to. Jesus, who? Like I said, previous generations felt that strain more than we feel it. Compartmentalization is built into our culture. Be the same person. Have the same morals everywhere you go. Why is something okay in in politics that's not okay in the kingdom? Why do you advocate for something? Do you convince yourself that it's okay as long as it's a law? What? What would Jesus do? What would he say in those settings? Come on, we're better than that. Number three, conservatism. Since we're stepping on toes, let's go for it. The fundamental attitude of conservatism is to conserve and hold on to what we have, cling to what we have already received. It protects itself and cuts itself off from everything new, progress, that kind of stuff. It acts like everything that is old is better. Like the good old days, man, when we had, you know, slavery and women couldn't vote. 
the good old days. This nation was predicated on a godly government in which women can't vote and we, yeah, slaves, sure, that's, that's, that's okay. Yeah. What? What good old days? Some of the past is really bad. Some of it's good. Some of the present is really bad. Some of it's good. That's the most objective thing that we could say about that. The problem is that it also makes us think our way is the right way. And that's a problem as well. This idea that because it's new, it's bad, is it kind of reminds me of the whole, well, I'm not going to get into that. I don't want to needlessly offend. Okay, number four. Wait, way to go, Garrett. Good self-control. First time today. Okay, so number four. Let's be equal opportunity offenders. Liberalism. The fundamental attitude is, if it seems unfitting, outmoded, or outdated, change it. God won't mind. It conflates, which means to treat two different things as the same thing. It conflates scripture and tradition, and treats them as merely somewhat useful, and places them both underneath, underneath modern reason and experience. It's got to make sense to me first. Then if it's scripture, it's great. If not, I can ignore that scripture and change my mind. It's got this myth of progress always being good. It's what I told you guys earlier. We've made legitimate progress, and then we lumped in anti-progress with it, and we can't tell the difference between those two things. Big problem. I would really like, I would have liked to have had time to go over something in Acts 17, which I find to be fascinating. In Acts 17, you have this really cool snapshot. The gospel is going out to the Gentiles, okay? In Thessalonica... The Jews come in whenever they hear the gospel being taught. They argue with Paul and they basically kick him out because they don't have space for that. That doesn't fit in their understanding of the Old Testament and of Yahweh. Okay? There's your conservatives. And then in the last half, I'm going to skip the middle. In the last half, you have Paul in Athens. And he gives this bomb speech to the Areopagus. Most excellent. Blah, 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 blah. I see all these different things. Blah, blah. And they're all like... Yes, yes, quite good. One or two of them follow Jesus. A couple of them do. The rest of them are like, thanks for the new idea, and are otherwise pretty apathetic about it. That's liberalism. Now, then, smack dab in the middle, you have the Bereans. You've heard of them, right? The Bereans. They study the scripture because they're like, hmm, how does this square with Old Testament theology? How does this square with our understanding of Yahweh, Right? And then they actually begin to incorporate it, chew on it, and then they decide, yeah, this guy, Jesus, this is the Messiah. They're noble because they studied the scriptures, because they considered what it was Paul was saying. They didn't err on the side of conservatism or liberalism in this. They weren't apathetic to the true truth. And that's all just in Acts 17. And you think that's an accident. That's not an accident. It might be an accident. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Sorry, I am a dad. I didn't plan that, okay? I appreciate the booze, which, by the way, are the goal of a dad joke, okay? So just want to make sure that we're all on the same page. I do not want laughter when I give a dad joke. Please just boo me. Okay, number five, capitulation. Capitulation. People give up, and they take on another ideology because it fits with their environment better. Man, am I tempted to change my theology to fit what everybody in our current culture wants me to say. Do you know how tempted I am? And maybe you feel that heartburn too, right? That heartburn that says like, man, I'm tempted to just reject the whole biblical witness on this topic. 
because the cultural pressure is just building so much. And if I can just be like, oh, I don't believe it, then it would relieve so much tension and pressure in my own heart and mind. But that is not thinking well. That's capitulation. That's giving in. That's what the word capitulation means. It means giving in. Christianity in that model is simply altered to suit a dominant paradigm. We alter our convictions and behavior simply to thrive in that context. And that is not the truth. All right, last section. We got it. We got this. Ten minutes. Okay, cool. Um, all right. Number one, epistemology. Study of, no- study of knowledge. What is knowledge? How do we know it? Why do we know it? Most people, like I said, don't evaluate how they came to think the way that they do. They become enamored with what they think. Here's a cool thought activity to do. For all the major things that you think about, right, the values that you have, I want you to try to trace them back to some person or experience in your life and figure out whether that was a good source or not. All right. Look at the the breadbasket there. Number two, nihilism. Very prevalent in our culture. This idea that we don't really have any meaning in anything that we do and nothing can really be known. But mostly, that's a modern response to large impersonal cultures. It's a reaction to these impersonal forces, and you really, just as a sociologist, I'll tell you, you really don't find this until large modern societies begin to pop up, right? And we begin to just see the scope of the world and feel meaningless. That's not what God wants. Let me ask you a question really briefly. Why do we infer value from quantity, I can see that didn't strike you. Do you know what I mean by that? What I'm saying is, why do you infer that just because there's a lot of something, that that doesn't mean it's valuable? Supply and demand. Yeah. Is that a kingdom model? No. There's 7 billion people on the planet. For all we know, we're the only people to exist in all of space. And space, as far as I understand, from Neil deGrasse Tyson, is quite large. But even saying that we're not, right? You were gifted with life. Why are, you, why, do you, why are you worried about whether God values you? God cares about every sparrow. He cares about you deeply and intimately. You are his child. Nihilism is untrue for that fact at the very least. You have value. Three, skepticism. We can't know what there is. It's not worth trying if we can't know something for sure. It rejects this notion that we can't know anything for sure. Or that we can know anything for sure. But what that ends up doing is throwing the baby out with the bathwater. There is a value in increasing our level of understanding and sureness about things. Does that make sense? When I play golf, which I do sometimes very poorly, I don't just say to myself, that pin looks like it's, I don't know, 200 yards away. That, that makes me change the club that I use to the wrong club and I'll fly it by a mile if I do that, right? If I'm like, well, it can't be known. So might as well just guess with the best fit. Like, no, I could actually do just a little bit of work to figure out how far that it is and then choose the right thing. Likewise, just because you may not know the fullest extent of every little thing does not mean there's value in knowing more of it. Does that make sense? So we should instead come to a greater and greater understanding of who God is, of what is true, all while growing in our love. Number four, individualism. I know we're moving fast. Keep with me. It treats us as the sole keepers of truth. It is self-referencing and dangerous because of that. 
In woodworking, I have to square boards very often, which means I have to take pieces of rough cut lumber and I need to make them square and true and straight. Here's a problem. There's not a single part of that board which is straight or square or true. If I use one side to try to flatten out the other side, it just imitates the problem of the underside. Does that make sense? I just gave you guys a really important woodworking lesson just right there as a part of this. Okay? Individualism is like trying to square a board with itself. That's the problem with it. The problem is that we are all wonky and we need outside tools that have been precisely machined in order to help us become square. The problem with it is that if it seems right to you, if you've thought through it, you feel good about it. And that does not necessarily make it right. We need outside help. We need peer-reviewed thought if we want to lead to objectivity. We can't perceive ourselves as the measuring stick. Number five, secularism. It believes, A, that religion is a source of inequality and injustice in society. Fair enough. B, that religion should have no role in determining the paths of government or society. The problem is that that asks a world that is vastly, uh, like the vast majority of the world is religious. It asks them to go ahead and just toss that out of any of their thought process, which can't happen. Number six, relativism. The idea that something should be judged on its own terms without applying any one standard or rule. Relativism has made it wrong to say anything is wrong unless you're the one saying something is wrong. Then that's wrong. Let me say that again. It's a fun thing to say. Relativism has made it wrong to say that anything is wrong unless you're the one that's saying something is wrong, in which case you're wrong for saying something's wrong. But you can't say something is wrong. In that model. Does that make sense? In other words, it hates, it hates this idea that any one person should be able to tell any other person that they could be wrong about something, and that is deeply unloving. That's not true. There are degrees of truth, and we get closer to it or further away from it. There is also truth and lies. And we might subscribe to any number of those things. Relativism, saying that everybody kind of has their own truth, is more like saying everyone has their flawed understanding of truth. And in reality, what we should do is, in love, try to address those things in our own lives and in the lives of people around us. It's a problem with relativism. And then pluralism. There's a lot of definitions and usages for this word, but here are kind of the three most common ones. This idea that all religions are good in their own way. Or, here's a, a, a more subversive one, all the good religions are good. You know the religions that are like uh, not murdering people? Like those are good religions. But the other, like the bad religions, those are bad. But the good religions are good. And by good, what I mean is like that they fit our current culture's understanding of what is good. Safe, sane, consensual. <laughs> And your third thing there is just pluralism of like, man, there is just a lot of options there. The problem here is that we want everything to be equal, but it isn't. The world's major religious systems are at odds with one another about what the truth is. They testify very different things about A, whether there's a God or gods, and then B, 
What is the nature of that God? And who is he really at heart? Pluralism cannot work in that way. They constitute vastly different ways of seeing the world and claims to truth. I want to leave you guys with just something simple here. I want you to take one minute, just one minute by yourself, and then we're going to have Mandy come up and give us instructions for dinner. No, we're not. Oh, wonderful. I'll do a Q&R. <laughs> cool. Okay, good deal. All right. Um, so let me do this then. Let's still do that one minute thing. I want you to do this. I want you to leave it at this, okay? When you look over that limited form of thought, those five limited forms of thought, I want you to look over those. I want you to own the one that you're the most led by or influenced by. I want you to own it. And all of you already know which one it is. It's the one that whenever you were saying it, you got defensive in your heart about it. Okay, that's the one. And maybe it was multiple. And if it was all of them, God bless you. So I don't know how you did it. Uh, So I want you to think just by yourself. I want you to circle or look at that one. And I want you to ask yourself the question, why? And then I want you to ask the Lord in prayer. I want you to ask the Lord to help move you to truth and to show you where you're wrong. It's one of my common prayers that I ask God to do all the time. I say, God, show me where I'm wrong. Show me where I'm living a lie. Show me where my problem is here. Okay. So do that right now. I'm going to give you one minute of silence. So just do that. Okay. And then we'll do a Q and A.